Well, welcome to a podcast for Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow, your host. This is the podcast that talks all about the Southern Resident Killer Whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. And today we have Kurt Russo, who is the Senior Strategist for the Lummi Nation's Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office. And Kurt, uh, the Lummi recently have done ceremonial feedings of the Southern Resident Killer Whales, and you're planning some more in the future. So can we first talk about what is a ceremonial feeding? What is a ceremonial feeding? Um, well, it gets to the question of what is a ceremony. Um, uh, you know, when you do a feeding of this kind, there is no pretense that we are feeding uh, to sustain all the 75 members of the Southern Resident Killer Whale population. This is a deep cultural structure of the Lummi people. They're feeding through ceremony, rather ancient ones, the spirit of the southern resident killer whale population. And over time, we're going to be feeding more and more fish go in the water as part of this feeding. It is uh, It gets to the heart of the world view of the Lummies as to what the killer whales need. And one thing they need is to know their relations on this side of the water are caring about them. So how do you do it? <laughs> how do we? How does it work? How does it work? Um, well, the way it worked on the last trip was um, the Lummi ritualists, the chief, the chairman, and several tribal members <clears throat> were on a Lummi law enforcement boat, rather small zodiac, and the others, including myself, were on the very large research vessel called the Sound Guardian, um, graciously loaned for this purpose by King County. And on that boat were, was myself, um, other members of the STPO, and a whole bunch of reporters. So we followed the uh, law enforcement boat out to a spot that was selected by ceremony. I wasn't on the boat, didn't know how they did that, but they get to a designated spot. They are told, I'll put told in quotes, where to go, and when they get there, they got out of the boat. They got out of the boat, got on the beach, built a fire, and spoke with the spirit and the ancestors who were gathered there by the hundreds and requested permission to help their Kualalmachan, which is the name for the killer whales in Lummi, Kualalmachan, it means the people that live under the water, the people that live under the water. And so after that ceremony was done and it took about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. They got back on the little Zodiac, and they went out to a specific specific place. They did more ceremony and did the right songs. The songs go with it. And they took a live king that had brought all the way from Squalicum Harbor and ceremonial placed it in the water with ceremony. And he went down into its relatives. This is the thing I think it's most difficult to get one's mind around. That this ceremony was going on thousands of years before the Europeans arrived. Thousands. So this is an ancient way of speaking to the relatives. And I can say this, that the the background of this, what they call the deep structure of this, is that killer whales and people followed a different 
evolutionary track than was given to us by our evolutionary theory. They are relatives. And they mean that literally, not figuratively. So there are longhouses. There are longhouses in the water. And in the longhouses are killer whales that are people. And I think it's the thing that, the thing that, this is not mythopoetic. And this is the thing that they're trying to express to their relatives. We're here, we believe, we understand, we care, we're helping. So this is the connection, and it's, it's not the typical form of understanding that you and I may be used to, but I can assure you, it's real and it's true. So for people who are just joining the podcast, I typically try to help them understand just yeah. how bad it is right now for the southern mm-hmm. resident killer whales. Yeah. And as you mentioned, they're 75 right now, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they rely on Chinook salmon, unlike mm-hmm. other killer whales who eat marine mammals or sharks. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. only eat fish. Chinook salmon aren't doing very well either right now, mm-hmm. so the whales don't have enough to eat. Along with that, they're dealing with pollution in the water and boat noise, which makes it hard for them to locate their food and talk with each other. So I'm curious, because this brings up a lot of the issues surrounding uh, the federal government, obviously, ultimately um, has been driving a lot of the decisions made around these whales. Now, the state has this task force that uh, over the last year has come up with recommendations to save them. Um, Back when you all were involved in the intervention for J-50, who was the calf last year they were trying to save, uh, who eventually ended up dying. Um, how does it work dealing with basically these two separate governments, right? You have the tribal government and the federal government and then the state government. and all. Is there uh, frustration or challenges to trying to work on recovery for these whales, um, whether it's, you know, you're doing a ceremonial feeding or you're actually uh, working with them on uh, some kind of intervention like you did last year. How does that all work, and are there challenges to that? There are challenges. Uh, there are challenges to that. And with the J-50 situation, of course, we were the feeding platform, that very same law enforcement boat that went out to do the feeding on April 10th that I was just talking about. That was the feeding platform for J-50. So we had the fish, and we were trying to find her. And I will say this that they went out twice in alignment with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA, Department of uh, Washington's Department of Fish and Wildlife. So we had three agencies and the Lummies. And they went out once, couldn't find them, couldn't find the pod, couldn't find anybody. Went out the second time, and um, there were only a few people on our boat this time, including the chief. And the chief of the Lummi Nation, his name is Salik, said, I'd like everyone to go in the cabin we all did. He stayed in the back, and he did something back in the back of the boat. It took quite a while. I don't know exactly what he did, but the four dorsals popped up on the north side of the boat, and J-50 popped up on the south side of the boat. So uh, this is real. I get very emotional about this. Uh, J-50, with the brilliance of a woman that was working on the NOAA spotter boat, and she is an orca whisperer. 
she could track J-50 in the water where she was, and she lined J-50 right up behind our boat. We put a salmon right on her nose. And it was a very, it was like water ballet. It was the most amazing illustration of what people can do when they work together and get bureaucracy out of the way and get all the lawyers out of there and just work together. It was it was a very moving moment. Now, she did die. No one really knows why, and they never found her. But I will say this, as, as we've mentioned to Noah, and I need to say to a couple things about the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. They have really good people working with them, and they care about the orca. I can assure you that, as do all of these other agencies. At the same time, we asked Noah the following question, and we didn't mean it by way of poking anyone in the eye. We're asking it with perspective. And the question is this. By what moral authority, moral authority, do you tell indigenous peoples of the Salish Sea what they can and cannot do to make sure their relatives don't slide into extinction. By what moral authority do you have that? Crickets. The question is this. The moral authority in our minds, in the Lummi's minds, rests in the sacred obligation they feel they have to their relatives. They are not getting any permits to feed ceremonially. They're not asking for any permission. None. They are being called to do it through ceremony and with ceremony. So with these ceremonial feedings, yep. in relation to mm -hmm. the federal government, mm -hmm. are you breaking the law or are they letting you do that or how does that work? Do you have to get a permit? Uh, well, the the Lummi position is for a ceremonial feeding done with ceremony and in ceremony, no permits. We're just we just not we're not they don't feel they have to have them and they're not going to try to get any. If they were going to go out and do a, a a subsistence feeding of some kind in a different context, maybe that's a different story. Ceremonial feedings, no. Now what does Noah say? I can tell you what Noah said. Um, when they heard we were going out to do a ceremonial feeding on April 10th, they said, our prayers are with you. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, it is, it's, it's interesting, but, you know, it is, I mean, this is the thing about the quilalments, about the orca, about the blackfish. It surfaces the best and worst in human nature. Hmm. The best in that it's a heartfelt connection. We all feel it. Everyone felt Talakwa's baby. If anyone born of woman didn't feel that, then their soul is dead. The downside of that is there are all of these permits and laws and regulations, and there's only 75 left. Right. So the, it's a challenge, and the Lummies have said, if we are called to do ceremony for our relatives, we are going to do it. We're going to do more. There's going to be at least three or four more feedings before this year is up. And it, it, may be, it may be ceremony with more than one fish. It might be 75 fish. We don't know how many fish because it's a calling. It's a ceremony. 
And, you know, this is something that Noah has been very understanding, that this is in ceremony. And this is a moral obligation that transcends the imposition of an illegal framework. It's pre-existing. It's an inherent right. Inherent right. A right that precedes the treaty. It matters to all of us because I, people might be thinking in their mind, oh, yeah, all that stuff, huh, ceremony, yeah, that's kind of interesting, one fish, whatever. But they're missing the point. They're missing the point. There is another paradigm in the water, in the sailor sea, that's just as real as science. And it's older, and it's real, and it works. And it will work, and the orca will will be restored. The ceremonies, uh, the ceremonies and the lummies, and not just the lummies, but certainly the lummies, are absolutely committed to the salmon and to the orca. And you know they're related, as you know. If either of those species goes out of the water, you will have a cascading, catastrophic, ecological collapse. So we have this task force, right, that came up with recommendations, mm -hmm. and now the legislature is voting on them. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, as you mentioned, this is um, a crisis, really. Time it is a crisis for the whales. They they are having the possibility of being functionally extinct if like a dozen of them who are capable of reproducing disappear. Because even though we say seventy five, that's really kind of a misguided number because a lot of them really have no ability to reproduce at this point. Would the lummies start taking even more drastic action uh, to try to save them, even beyond what you're doing right now? If it got worse? Well, I can quote um, Raynell Morris, uh, and she's not the only one to say it, but she said it most recently at a press conference when asked that very question. What will you do if what you're now doing is not enough? And she said, we will do whatever it takes. And the reporter said, what does that mean? And she said, we will protect them. So am I going to unpack that any further? No, but um, that's what she said, and that's what we mean. I try to give people some hope. I hate ending on a negative note, and there's a lot of negativity surrounding these whales right now. When you think about the Lummi hoping, um, praying, and, and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. feeling so connected to these whales, where do you find your hope? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, it's I, two things. Um, from their ancestors, this comes back to the Cherry Point fight. The, their ancestors were also involved in that, and they were the reason we won, and I won't go into that. But when they were on the beach, uh, the seven lummies were on the beach, and the hundreds of the unseen ones were there talking to them through the spirit boards. They said, you will prevail. Persist. Hope is there. And also a comment, if I may add one last thing. Uh, when uh, the Lummies were working in um, Brazil with Native Americans there, they met with an activist. And he turned to the Lummies and he said, I share your belief that if you are activist, you are not allowed to not have hope. Not allowed. You must have hope and inspire hope. And not just unrealistic hope. Hope based in real action. And I encourage everyone to think about that. Because as Susan Sontag once said, once said that compassion is a very unstable emotion. 
it withers without action. I love it. That's a great quote and a great reminder. Kurt, is there anything else you'd like to say I didn't ask you about? (laughs) No, but I will say this. Keep your eyes on the lummies. They're going to be in the water a lot with their relatives. Again, Kurt Russo, Senior Strategist for the Lummi Nation's Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office. Kurt, thanks for being on the podcast today. My pleasure.